Welcome to the Dr. Lori Marbus podcast. Today, I'm so excited to have Dr. Ron Weiss. How are you doing today? I am fantastico. Thank, thank you. you. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your evening to spend with us. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> uh, Dr. Weiss is a board-certified internal medicine doctor. He's the executive director of Ethos Health in New Jersey, and which is a, a really cool place to see. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, Ethos Health? Yes. Uh, Ethos Health is a farm-based healthcare system. Uh uh, I believe we are probably the first primary care practice uh, based on a farm. And um, we connect human health to the natural world. Uh, we are not a medical care system like the, the general American health, quote, health care system is. Uh, uh, the American system of care, we believe, is one that sustains people in states of chronic illness and uh, we prefer to have a true health care system where we make people healthier and healthy. Uh, and we do that by reversing their illnesses and preventing them with a, a diet of um, whole unrefined plant foods and its attached lifestyle. Fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit of how this all got started? And what was your impetus for starting it? Yes. Um, well, uh, I was born in a log cabin. No. <laughs> um, yes. Well, you know, I, from my early days of childhood, when I was, I think it was four years old, my, my mother, from, for a birthday present, bought me a pack of seeds. And, uh, she helped me plant those seeds. They were a, a, an old-fashioned flower called four o'clocks. Um, four o'clocks, also known as the marvel of Peru, hmm. because I believe they are from Peru originally, open at four o'clock every day. They are little trumpet-shaped, beautiful flowers in pinks and reds and yellows and whites with little spl paisley splashes on them. And um, I was so amazed to see the, the seed go from a little brown speck to, you know, a couple of leaves and then this nice plant with the flowers that opened up on cue every afternoon, that that was it for me. And uh, I was, from that time on, smitten with plants. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I grew up taking care of my, my family at a lar large property. I was doing all the gardening and growing stuff. And I uh, thought I'd be someday be able to have a farm, be a farmer. But um, my parents convinced all of us that uh, we should be going to medical school. So uh, I put the farm thing in abeyance. I went to medical school and um, you know, did pre-med medical school, did a residency in internal medicine. Um, and as I was finishing, after I finished my residency, and was just practicing. My father was diagnosed with uh, end-stage metastatic pancreatic cancer. Um, we uh, took him to the best cancer hospital in the world, and he was told he had one to three months to live. Uh, offered conventional chemo, which had no uh, no ability to help, 
and he decided to go home and do nothing and prepare for death. I moved home to live, back home to live with him. Uh, and um, it was tough. It was very difficult for all of the family. And uh, I felt uh, extremely, uh, you know, impotent because I, I was this newly minted doctor who, you know, new young doctors can do everything, can't they? And here my own father was dying and there was absolutely nothing I could do to help him. So I, um, I walked to the public library in town because there was nothing in my medical books I knew that could help him. And I started going through the shelves on alternative uh, medical practices. You know, at that time, it was the early 90s, and I think it was 1992. Alternative practices in healthcare were starting to catch on. I was reading about all kinds of things, uh, from Chinese medicine to acupuncture to laetrile, shark cartilage, all this stuff. And um, I finally got to a book that was uh, a book of testimonials on people who had been on a macrobiotic diet. And there were some, which is a, is a diet uh, in its strictest form of whole unrefined plant food. And there were testimonials of people who had done very well. There was actually one person in there who had cured pancreatic cancer um, in, a, in, a, in an advanced stage mm. by eating like this. And uh, I took this book home to my father, showed it to him. He said, let's go. We took him up to see Michio Kushi, who is the proponent of, of uh, the leader of the macrobiotic movement in the United States in Boston. And he set him on a very strict course, basically consisting of uh, seaweed, brown rice, some root vegetables like parsnips, um, no potatoes, no nightshade vegetables, mm -hmm. a lot of dark cruciferous leafy greens, kale and collards and all that stuff, uh, legumes, uh, and uh, no fruits, um, a few grains like brown rice, mm, but not many. And that was about it. And uh, he did amazingly. He did. He was literally revived from a pre uh, pre morbid state within days to weeks. Got off all of his narcotics for his abdominal pain. You know, going to the bathroom every day now. Started going. Went back to his law practice within a week. Started to go to the gym in two weeks. Was running every day. I mean, this was someone who was almost dead, and. Um, and it, it just every month that passed got better and better. Uh, at six months, we got a CAT scan on him that showed one third reduction in all of his major tumor masses. Uh, nine months, 50 percent reduction on a follow up CAT scan. And a year later, we took him back to the head of the department at this hospital. And when he walked in, my father walked in. He seemed to be very shocked to see him there. Mm -hmm. My father was still doing very well. And um, he asked, when he asked my father what was up, it, 
what he had he been doing because you know all the people who were entered a, a year ago with him they were all dead his cohorts and uh when my father started to tell him that uh he was eating seaweed and kale and brown rice you have to remember this is 1993 mm. this doctor uh lost complete interest and uh, it was as if a screen descended between us and this doctor was not even curious enough to maybe ask my father a few more questions like what this is and just change the subject and uh, that was a defining moment for me professionally because um, you know my father had not chosen chemo he was doing nothing else I'd treated a lot of patients in my residency on the oncology team like him. It was just miserable. And this was the only thing he was doing. And I attribute his improvement to the food. Mm -hmm. And um, so that really, uh, you know, my father lived for 18 months uh, instead of one to three months. Most of it doing extremely well, practicing law, which is what he loved practiced up until about two weeks until he died he died fairly quickly and um you know after he passed away um i focused my practice on helping people uh the foundation of it being food wow so when you're sitting there as a young you know doctor and you're having this other physician tell you know just not even showing any interest at all of what had this amazing transformation with your dad, what were the first thoughts? I mean, did you say anything? Did you just, were you just in disbelief? I mean, what was going on there? Were you angry? Mm -hmm. You know, I, hmm. it takes me a while to think about things sometimes. It's a very complex reaction that this doctor had. And I still think about it to this day because I know you're a plant-based physician and we see this reaction oftentimes from our conventional colleagues, don't mm-hmm. we? Oh yes. And I'm, I can tell you that when I, I have a patient that I'm seeing and this patient has been transformed by plants and for example, they'll go back to their endocrinologist and they, uh, three months previously, they were on 400 units of Lantus insulin and then they come back three months later and their sugars were completely out of control. And then they follow up with the endocrinologist and they're on nothing and their sugars are 100. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they tell the endocrinologist what happened, the, I mean, this is a common uh, thread that I hear from the patients. The endocrinologist or the rheumatologist or whoever the specialist is will look, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, take it all in. And then sort of say, well, you know, um, so nowadays, sometimes they say, okay, well, that's okay. But there's always some kind of disclaimer or, okay, well, I think you'll be back on the medications again, or it's not like, and the amazing thing to me is that it, I think the thing that I get out of this lesson from this doctor long ago and from the Doc, the conventional doctors that um, that don't accept what they see for real in front of them is that um, you know doctors are scientists 
And scientists uh, have, should have observational skills. They have to observe and make note of what is going on uh, in, in, in the world that surrounds them. And then they act, then they come up with uh, hypotheses mm -hmm. based on these observations. And it's so odd to me that, you know, you can see some, someone, obviously, tumors are shrinking away. Uh, insulin is gone and the patient's sugars are normal. However, they will observe this but not process it so that they can think about what's going on and then transfer that information in a professional way into their own practice so that they can help perhaps the next person who is dying of pancreatic cancer or the next patient who is on 300 units of insulin. It doesn't ever get there. And that's disappointing to me. Yeah. Because, because I, you know, in my own practice, I, if someone comes in and tells me something and it's remarkable, I make note of it. Mm -hmm. As long as it seems to be valid, because I, that's a pearl to me. You know, this is, this is the way, you know, uh, humanity has built its fund of knowledge about, uh, treatments and for over thousands and thousands of years it was by trial and error right and i just don't understand how this information is discarded i feel the exact same way and you know i've actually since i last spoke to you i don't recall if this had happened at that time i actually had a local specialist call the office where i'm at here in boca and the first words out of her mouth were I'm going to report you to the state medical board. I said, really? I said, first of all, I don't know who you are and you don't know who I am. And I was very calm. And um, apparently a, a patient that I had never even seen, had she had just heard about us, had spoken to us briefly at a, a lunch and learn type thing and went back to her specialist and said, I'm going to get better with this plant-based diet. And... Um, this physician called up and was irate at the idea that we could even suggest such a thing. I said, well, first of all, I've never seen your patient and you don't know anything about what we're doing. And um, come to find out she had um, lost a patient who had gone off into some other, you know, other alternative method. I don't know exactly what happened. And uh, by the end of the conversation, though, she was asking us for brochures. But... <laughs> But it was really disturbing. <laughs> I just I've learned to make lemonade out of lemons many yes. times. That 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 anecdote tells you that I think that one of the problems is that I think that the the conventional physician in that position feels threatened. Yeah. Uh, perhaps because uh, you know they don't you know it, it's it, it's. You know, I don't know if, if you've, I know you've seen it and, and probably a lot of your listeners have probably seen it, the movie Forks Over Knives. Mm -hmm. And there's a anecdote in there, this, uh, what is her name? Uh, Sandra Nation, I believe that was the, the person. There was a, there was a lady who worked in a, in a diabetes clinic who Dr. Esselstein was seeing. She was very overweight mm -hmm. and 
Dr. Esselstyn and Mrs. Esselstyn worked with her and they got her, you know, her, she was on diabetes medicine taken care of by a endocrinologist. And so she called up the endocrinologist one day after she was doing very well. And she said, Dr. So-and-so, my sugars are like 80. Should I, should I stop this medicine that you have me on? Because, you know, I'm, I've been, I've been work doing this diet with Dr. Esselstyn. And she relates in the movie that the remark from the endocrinologist was, what, what is that doctor trying to do? Is he trying to take you off the medicines I put you on? And then she says, yeah. <laughs> oh, I've even had patients um, who had a specialist um, had started three different hypertensive meds and when the patient transferred the diet transformed his diet stopped all the the blood pressure meds actually that physician apparently got very upset with me for stopping these medications because I didn't call and ask for permission and um that too is a bit frustrating you see your patient who has normalized blood pressure now who doesn't need to be on three blood pressure medications why should I have to call and ask for permission to take patients off medications that they no longer need and especially blood pressure meds. I mean, that can be dangerous. And so, um, it, it is fascinating to me. It's, it's weird for me to be, I mean, I've been doing this for almost six years now and, um, it's just so strange for me to be on, um, the end of critical thinking of a colleague. It just really bugs me. It's like, you know what? I don't, I know. I, it, it's an emotional it has nothing to do with science evidence or what's good for the patient no. i think there's also a terri a territorialism yeah. where yeah. this is my patient and who is this interloper who's coming <laughs> and, and actually undone the things that i was doing with this patient and you didn't ask my permission and and the other thing is you know I'm sure the doctor also at the same time feels very self-conscious because imagine you're treating this person for five years, right, or mm -hmm. something. You're telling, oh, you have to go on the embryo. You're taking the embryo. I'm having you on methotrexate. All these terries on the highs are that you have to take in, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, in a month or so, they come in on nothing and everything's fine. Mm -hmm. It makes you... It, I w it would make me feel very self-conscious and, you know. I, 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 get, I guess I don't, what I don't understand is because when I trans really switched my diet, it was a patient who had told me that meat and dairy upset her stomach. And I said, stop eating meat and dairy. And she came back in 30 days and her daughter went on the diet with her and her daughter um, was on two attention deficit disorder meds, pulled herself off of them within 30 days. She was 16. I was like. She brought her daughter. She goes, Dr. Marbus, what happens? Like, I don't know. This is really cool. Let's that's, go find out. <laughs> get excited, right? In a positive way. I mean, if a doctor. Right. And if that's a, what I'm saying, I don't think these, I don't think people have reactions like this. It's scary. Right. I, I don't think they're, I don't think they should be doctors. They mm -hmm. don't serve their patients well. When I think a, a physician, when they find out something that is, powerful you've got to spread that to every single person you know you're the you're the messenger right and here I, they have found it out right and contain it and bury it, it makes no sense to me I know. 
because when that, I, hey, I that is crazy. It is insane. You should, you should call the medical board on her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but you sit here and you it's look like, at. It's like uh, who says that? So, uh, I know a lot of guys have said that. That someday I know Dr. Furman has said it, and I know I, I believe Dr. Greger has said it. That someday, someday, the malpractice will be. For not when you, your arteries are all clogged up, and they didn't, the, your cardiologist did not tell you that the best treatment would be the simplest, best, cheapest treatment and guaranteed to your to your good health would be to just change your diet and not have the operation and not go on the drugs, mm-hmm. and that will be malpractice. Right, absolutely, because you know it's it's medical negligence not to give them. Every opportunity to be fully informed. And uh, boy, I could talk about this for a long time. (laughs) So frustrating, beyond frustration. But you know what I found, though, is working with nurse practitioners and PAs, they are much more open to this type of message, and at least in my experience, than some of my colleagues that are physicians. And um, but anyway, but it, I don't know it. What do you think? uh... Yeah. Um, oh, I was going to say one other thing, and it just it, fl- it flew away. <laughs> but um, apropos, um, yeah, I can't remember now. Well, that's all right. Um, wow. So your your dad lived in eighteen months longer, had reduction in the size of his tumors. The doctor just blew it blew it off like oh. I mean, I, I just don't understand. Like, what did he say to your dad? Like, this is nonsense. You just got miraculously better. He just <clears throat> cleared his throat and said, you know, just, it was just, what's he, you know, you, you can imagine this. Yes. I mean, he felt uncomfortable and didn't know what to do. Be like, if I told you, no, I, I had this tumor and I, I stood in front of the, you know, the television set and heard like, they were talking to me, and then I brought the energy in, and then I, well, I felt the tumor shrinking, and the spaceship came and spaceship came, and <laughs> I saw flashing lights in the sky. It was basically the same thing. I'm eating. What? What do you do? What? What? What's? What? So? What have you been doing? I'm eating seaweed and brown <laughs> rice and, and and kale. Okay, and this is before kale made it big. The average <laughs> person didn't even know what kale was, right? So you can imagine, I'm sure this doctor probably didn't know what Cal was. He just said, I am ending this conversation now. Oh, my goodness. So sad. And I think of all the people that they could have helped, you know, and that's one thing. My daughter starts medical school this fall and we we worked on her for a while and she finally switched over to a plant based diet this year. And yep. I'm so tickled in who she'll be able to help. And my youngest wants to be a doctor too. And I'm just, I'm so excited to be breeding the children. <laughs> we'll continue are. the message. It's so important because uh, I think that, you know, that's the other thing is that, um, you know, doctors, they have to model the behavior for the patients. It is hard for a patient to want to, to be convinced to do this mm-hmm. if you're if you as the physician are not doing it so th- i think i that's a wonderful thing for your daughter right. and she will be the most powerful physician and have the most successful patients because she walks the walk 
and she talks the talk. And I'm just remembering now what I wanted to say before. <laughs> okay. And that has to do with this. So thank you for cueing me with the story of your daughter. <laughs> and it is, um, you know, there was a, um, a good friend of mine who uh, was a wonderful, one of the best lung doctors I've ever met, and one of the great physician um, who uh, I worked with, with for many years, would refer him many patients because he was so fantastic, you know, asthma patients and COPD patients and emphysema patients. And um, so finally, a few, um, um, <clears throat> upon opening my, my new farm practice, I figured, you know, let me call him up. And I had a conversation with him. I said, Dr. So-and-so, I said, listen, if, because he was so, such a great doctor and we were friends. I said, if you, if you ever have a patient, and I know you have some really bad ones who are steroid dependent on asthma, like you can't get them off. They're always on prednisone every day for the rest of their lives. People like that are severe. Ask them. Ask them if they want to try, like tell them about me. And because we have excellent success with asthma. I mean, always, I've never seen anyone not do well. And at the very least, we could get them off prednisone and maybe no medicines. And he said, yeah, he said, oh, I, I said, I said, don't, well, don't you believe that, don't you believe it works? He said, sort of half-heartedly. Yeah, yes. But, you know, uh, who's going to do that? Who is going to live like that and eat, their, eat that way? It's too hard. And what I came to understand about thinking when I thought about that is what he was saying is, uh, I would not do that. So if I'm not going to do that, why the hell? Would anyone else do that? Or I wouldn't expect the patients to do that. And that's what's so wonderful about what your daughter did. And unfortunately, this wonderful doctor uh, I found out a few months ago was on in vacation, on vacation 65 years old in Mexico during this past winter, uh, was swimming. He all of a sudden... Uh, uh, became got went into distress, had a heart attack. Apparently, was dragged out of the water and was dead on the beach. Mm. And the whole community was very upset because he was such an important doctor in the community. But I think about, you know, the first time I thought about it with one feeling, and the second time I thought about it with sadness because if he had been able to think that he could do it he'd still be here with us right yeah that is very uh disturbingly sad and yeah. um at the same time you know going back to the physician not thinking the patient will make these changes i think that is wrong for a doctor to assume because they're taking the power of the choice away from the patient by making that assumption. When they have knowledge that can save a life, 
it is absolutely imperative imperative absolutely that they share that knowledge and let that patient make that decision and because, it's very realistic to do otherwise right you know i've had patients i've had physicians tell me the same thing oh doc you know no patient's going to want to do that i said well that's not been my experience when i explain to them what can happen and they are tired of being sick they're tired of taking medications they will try it. Now, do they struggle sometimes? Absolutely. So now my new thing that I've been working on is actually how to help patients maintain habits. You know, what is it that allows us to not only start something, but continue and maintain a habit? You know, there's a lot of really interesting psychology um, and just some, it's fascinating, the behavioral health stuff. I mean, I'm just learned so much. And so and I, I think, you know, doctors, we need to understand, one, how to interview patients, how to share this knowledge, because lifestyle medicine is the only thing I think is going to save save us. It's the only thing. It, it definitely. Yeah. Uh, you know, the the uh, for years, when I first started going on the speaking circuit and talking, I had this, my first talk that I made a, a few years ago was... Uh, I incorporate some statistics uh, regarding the three, the almost three trillion dollars that we spend every year on health. I'm sorry, medical care. Mm -hmm. They call it health care in mm -hmm. this country. And I, so I was retooling my talk and I looked up at the CDC website over as of August 2016. It's now three point two trillion dollars. Oh and the CDC also estimates that 86 percent of that. $3.2 trillion is due to chronic illness, medical costs. Wow. And there is just no way that we can over, ever overcome our, any of our problems, insurance problems, you know, access problems. We don't have enough money in this country or this world to take care and keep developing new $10,000 cholesterol drugs and $500,000, right? $500,000 chemo agents, there's not enough money to pay for all this stuff. So it is lifestyle that will get us there. Yeah. And at the core of the lifestyle is, of course, the plant. The green plant. So going back a little bit to your love of farming. So I know when we've spoken before, you spoke about um, soil and, and taking actually care of the earth in that sense. Can you give us a little bit of information about that? Maybe what the listener would find helpful when they think about when they're buying food, what they should be looking for, or just the thought about conventional versus organic farming, different things like that? Yes. Well, that's an enormous subject. Well, um, you know, pick what you like and go and, with uh, it. Yeah. Let me see if I could pare it down a little bit instead of droning on for hours and hours. Well, I wanted to give you something to talk about. <laughs> so the first thing, yeah. The first thing I like to, the two statements um, I like to consider is mm, there's two ways to look at uh, um, what we are eating in terms of how it is produced. And it matters how something is grown. I mean, I don't, I, I, that is intuitive to me. I, I think it's probably intuitive when people take the time to think about it, just like it matters the way a child is raised. I mean, if you, if you just, he 
never goes to school, is drinking beer all day long, you know, you know, and eating uh, frosted flakes or what. He's going to have rotten teeth when he grows up, being a juvenile delinquent and antisocial, you know. So if the just as the child has to be raised with care, our food has to be raised with care. You just can't stick it in sand and spray it with chemicals and hope to get plants that will nourish us at the highest level. Now, plants are so amazing that even if you do spray them with chemicals, they will still help us. And even if you do buy conventional produce, yeah, they have endocrine disruptors on them. They have carcinogens on them. And uh, however, uh, the phytochemicals that are in the plants are so amazing. And the fiber that's there to feed our microbiome in the colon is so fantastic that they will help the average person overcome vast chronic illness deficits. So um, I think that's why a lot of people may not consider organic. But here's one reason, and to me, the most important reason to consider it. It's for our children, and it's for our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. We have a responsibility to ensure that this earth is sustained for future generations. And um, I think that we are in trouble. Our oceans are in trouble. Our water is in trouble. Our soil is absolutely in trouble. And I think if you ask most people who they live for, they live for their children, right? I mean, you would gladly give up your life for any of your children, and I would too. So why don't we pay attention to the way our food is raised? Because the methods that, unless they are mindful, they, they're really extremely destructive to the earth, which is the substrate for our children and future generations. And I think the way it's going, unless we do something differently, our children, you know, my children are nine and 11 years old, I think by the time they reach my age, in their 50s, I think life on the planet Earth will be difficult for them. So I think it's incumbent upon us to help them and help future generations. I think that's the most important reason to do it. And when you say life will be difficult, what do you envision that meaning? Like, what, what do you see that being? Uh, if we don't change our ways as far as growing food and the methods used to grow it and, you know, of course, everything else that goes along with it, you know, with, uh, which is related to uh, greenhouse gas emissions, um, I think that there will be many of the hmm, – uh, it will set off – and it is setting off a chain of events which will be very difficult for us to overcome. Um, uh, diseases that will make growing things very difficult. I mean, uh, we live in New Jersey, and that's where our farm is. And there are always new plant diseases coming upon us um, that were never here before. There are plant diseases that are migrating up from warmer climates because 
You know, our area is becoming warmer as everyone else's is. Plants have not evolved that quickly to uh, to combat these diseases. Um, you know, um, the chemicals that are used by conventional agriculture and soils are very destructive to the soil. And the soil is really where we come from. Uh, all the manner of uh, herbicides, insecticides, fungicides that are constantly sprayed on plants to, to, um, to thwart diseases absolutely affect in a negative way the soil microbiome or the, the microbial world in the soil, which is the gastrointestinal tract for plants. You can't spray these things and not have a deleterious effect on the soil. And, uh, you know, according to the USDA, our soils are, are in, not in good shape. They're, they're deteriorating. So the average consumer, for you know, for many of us, we, you know, we live in urban areas and we don't have a farm. We can't necessarily grow our own food. So you're, what would you be your suggestion that we buy all organic then, or or what what would be your exact recommendation? Well, you know, people who live in urban areas, they usually have access. Their farm markets are so popular now; they've mm -hmm. exploded over the last decade. And I don't know any, you know. A town that doesn't have uh, a farmer's market in it, at least in, you know, suburban areas, definitely cities do. And I would patronize them. I would go and, and find yourself a farmer, find out what his growing or her growing methods are and, you know, buy your produce from that farmer. You're welcome to. I'm sure that the farmers, when they do things right, they're proud to have you come visit them on the farm. They want to show you. Yeah, it's important to know who's growing your food. So you should meet your farmer, know who the farmer is, and ask the farmer what growing methods is is he or she employing. Right. Are you using any chemicals? Are you using organic certified pesticide? Or do you use nothing? Do you use compost? Do you use how are you growing my food that I'm eating? And find someone who's good, who is growing with sustainable healthy methods, and then patronize that person. And uh, it doesn't have to be certified organic. In fact, many, many uh, of these high-level farmers refuse to have themselves undergo organic certification because it's too, it's, uh, uh, they, to tell you the truth, a lot of their methods are beyond organic um, certification uh, requirements. Uh, however, um, the next best thing would be to buy certified organic USDA produce in the store. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. certainly in even conventional supermarkets these days, shop and stop or, you know, shop rights or what have you. Um, there's always an organic section and buy it if it has that label on it, USDA um, certified. I think the current figures are that it's, it is still less than 1% of all the food that is grown in this country is organic certified. Mm. So 99% is basically conventional. And isn't it rather expensive to be uh, certified organic? And that may be some of the... It's, uh, it's, it's uh, expensive, including keeping constant logs of temperatures and compost and when things are going on and all inputs into the fields have to be cataloged and you have to keep receipts 
it's it's a lot of work. Okay. Okay. Wow. Wow. So. But yeah, it's the only measure of assurance or procedure that that at least the general public have. If you don't know your farmer personally, when you see that USDA label, that green label saying organic, you know, it is some assurance that there are some procedures being followed uh, that are being regulated. So I, I think it's reasonable. And when they see the organic sticker, it has a number nine in front of it, meaning uh, it's organic when you go to shop it, shop at a regular grocery store. Excuse me. So when at the Ethos Health, you guys have a farm and you you grow produce. Who gets to benefit from that produce? Uh, anyone. Uh, the public can come. We have people who have driven three hours to get to us because they like the story and they like the website and say we just had to taste. Yeah. This. I, I don't know. They, I don't think they can be driving every week three hours, but they, but uh, they anyone can come. We have a uh, a farm market. It's called the Doctor's Farm Market. Mm-hmm. And um, and we sell our uh, produce that we grow there, and it's uh, you know really nice. It's nice stuff. And now someone can have you as their primary care doctor there, right? Yeah. And yes. you have different levels of care, and can you explain how that works? Yes. So you know I am a primary doctor, and um, huh. so. You know, it's a funny thing. When the interesting thing about primary care is, the average person who comes in looking for a primary care doctor is not doesn't have a usually a specific thing like a knee pain. I'm going to the orthopedist, or I have palpitations or chest pain. I'm going to the cardiologist. They have you know life. So it's more of a broad-based approach has to be taken, sort of like a 50,000-foot forest view, not going through the forest looking at any particular tree. And so because of that, different there's a wide range of needs that uh, a, a, you know, any particular patient or a group of patients may have. So we have different uh, ways of you know, offering patients uh, our services in the practice. What I usually do is I have them come for an initial visit, and the initial visit takes about an hour, and then I catalog everything, and you know structure it for them, and then uh, I give them some homework to do. And it depends. I would say about fifty percent of all of our patients are already plant-based when they come, but they are not meeting their goals, and about fifty percent. Uh, have no idea of what I'm doing there. So um, it depends what the needs of the patient are and depends what they're looking for, but it could be anywhere from, uh, I'll say, you know, do you know, do you know what like, uh, like kale is? What? No, I don't. And then I'll just, I'll give them a little simple homework to do, maybe a little reading to do um, about plant foods and and then I'll ask them to come back and see me and follow up. Maybe I'll give them a prescription to get some blood tests. If it's a, a person who is more immersed in the plant-based world, or, or if, some, if, if, if it is even a person who does not know a lot, but they are in a position to 
embrace sudden change. Uh, and they are looking for that. And they no, don't exactly know everything what I'm doing, but they want it. Those kinds of people we will engage more rigorously with programs. And they can be nutritional counseling programs. They can be educational programs. They can be a combination of both. They can be some fitness programs. and Or they can be our the top-level program, which is called a year of mindful living where everything is mindful about what they do. And it includes all of our visits and educational classes and cooking classes and support sessions and trips and, you know, all kinds of things. So you know, we have a range of, a range of um, yeah, uh, offerings. And it depends on who the patient is and what their desires are as to what they end up So getting. you're basically meeting the patient where they are at and then helping them along the they way are. to health regardless mm-hmm. of where they're at. Yes. Yes. Cool. Yes. So, and you see, now do you see, what are your ages of uh, individuals that you see? If you are a human being, we will see you. <laughs> I love it. Uh, of any age. Uh, any age. I like it. Uh, from, from newborn to, you know, Super centenarian. <laughs> Fantastic. And so now where exactly is Ethos Health located in New Jersey? It is in the center of a farm. This farm is a 275-year-old working farm. Wow. It was a farm before America was a country. It is still a farm. It's never stopped working. Uh, it is a national historic landmark. It is about one hour west of Manhattan in northern New Jersey. And it is surrounded, it's in a valley, a green valley, which has been completely preserved. Uh, There are 42 preserved farms permanently in our town alone. And it's a very nice agricultural setting. That is really cool. Wow. And so, and what year did you open? We opened October 3rd of 2014. So you're going on your third anniversary in October. Yes, this October will Very be third. Cool. And I guess, so when you have someone first come in and they're completely clueless as to what you do, I don't know how they could not know they're going to a farm <laughs> to see. There must be some hint of something. Um, what is... Well, they don't, they don't fall in. There's Usually there's a reason yeah. why they're there. They've either read an article... They saw it on the internet. So they they know where they're going. And I think a lot of them are coming because they just are not getting the, they're not getting traction. They're frustrated with what they're doing and no one else can help them. So they're just looking for something different. If they don't know what plants are about, they're just, they say, wow, this, this seems like it's very different. I'm, I'm going to go there to see if my problem can be helped. So if you have someone who's completely oblivious, what's the first, uh, words that you speak to someone because i know what i do i tell a story of how this happened do you share your story of your dad or do you share the story of how they could get better other patients i mean what is that what is the hook that you're using to bring someone into the fold that's more you know kind of help them move into that willingness to change uh well i specifically um i frame it in terms of their problems so if the person is obese, 
or if the person has diabetes, or I mean, there's some reason the person's mm -hmm. coming to me. If the person has glaucoma, if the person has psoriasis, if the person has high cholesterol, I sort of craft the visit around, we always ask the question, first of all, everyone has to fill out a, an intake form before they get there. And the, the last question we ask them is, what are your goals in coming here? What are you trying to get? And I take that, and then I fashion the rest hmm. of the visit out of that. And they will say, point blank, I'm afraid of dying, or I'm afraid, I don't want to have Alzheimer's like my right. mother had. Or they'll say, right. I've been, you know, I've been injecting myself with insulin. I'm a type 1 diabetic, but my hemoglobin, my sugars are still 9% hemoglobin A1C, and I don't know, and I'm afraid to go into kidney failure. So we, we, I attack the patient on those, not attack the patient, I attack the issues and address the issues for the patient, give them evidence-based information during the visit and say, did you know this? Or, you know, did you know this? Well, you're worried about, you know, you diabetics do get end organ damage and, you know, but see that, that, that chicken that you're eating, it's, you know, that animal protein is not good for your kidneys. It's giving your kidneys a very hard job to do. You want to take it easy on your kidneys. So you already go to a nephrologist. Didn't the nephrologist tell you they want you to have a low-protein diet? Mm -hmm. And then I give them, I, I talk to them like that, and I give them, then I give them homework to do where I actually give them mm -hmm. links to information to prove what mm -hmm. I'm saying. And then I say, you know, you know, that's basically the way I craft it. Okay, that's... Everything is evidence-based. Right, there, there's, there's so much science, you know, that's... <sighs> It's funny because when I, for example, when I spoke to Dr. Esselstyn before and he's like, Lori, you, you guys need to do research and do more um, studies to prove this. I was like, what more studies need to be done? Because, yeah. I mean, there's so much information out there and the clinical evidence is just so overwhelming. It frustrates me to think that I would have to, because I'm not, I've never had fun doing research. Like it's just the whole, you know, building the whole the whole structure, I find it's, it's annoying. I'd rather be out there helping patients change their life, get them moving in that habit formation. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And th that is what I love. I was like, well, we need more as the practical approach to things. How can I get this? How can I do this? Like, how can we move this into schools? And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm looking more at the broader, the picture of things, but, um, but the science is so overwhelming there. But then you have these other physicians out there, for example, pushing, you know, high fat diets, the paleo Atkins type crowd. Do you get patients who question you about that? It's like, well, my friends lost weight doing the paleo diet. How can this help me more than that? What do you say to that when you, how do you poo poo those type of comments and suggestions? You know what? Not the patients that come to the practice on the mm. farm. I think they're selected. They're pre-selected. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, even though they're pre-selected, there are, you know, of course, the number one question that the patients will ask you, right, where am I going to get my protein right. from? So that basically is a indirect reference to if I don't eat animal foods, how mm -hmm. am I going to live? Yeah, you know, because there's a prejudice towards 
you know, needing to do that. And uh, I noticed that it is still, you know, in in a conventional setting, when I pr uh, practice in a conventional office, everyone says that. By the time they get to the farm office, less people mm. say that. But, uh, you know, I, I think that I don't, to tell you the truth, I don't see the op that's not the greatest obstacle. Mm. Uh, I think the greatest obstacle is, is not to let people know that it is the truth and that the plants work and that eating the animals are not good. Because to tell you the truth, the majority of patients who are who we educate, who do not choose at least in, immediately or soon to go on plant-based diet, um, when you question them, they'll say, "Okay, I get it. You know, I'll. You're right, but they just can't. They don't mm -hmm. want to." They don't, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've driven to see forks over knives. Literally every truck driver, every, doesn't matter who you are, I do not, there's not a patient, narrow patient I see every day, even when I'm doing truck driver physicals, it doesn't matter who you are, I always direct them mm -hmm. to that movie. And follow up, the majority of them, I'll say, hey, I saw you two years ago. I told you, do you remember? Oh, yeah, I did see that. That was an amazing movie. I said, so what did you think about it? Oh, it was like very exciting. So how's your diet? I didn't do anything about it. And I think it's because of, you know what, the, the pleasure mm -hmm. trap. It's about, it's not that they don't believe it. It's that they're trapped in their dietary habits. And the will to overcome that is it's just not great enough. And I think that's why most people stay stuck where they are. And you know, that really worries me is for our kids because we've done such a incredible job of bringing processed foods into schools, into families. You know, they're stressed out. They're, it's convenience foods. And, uh, I mean, these kids are going to be hooked on these foods from, you know, I, I mean, I've had little kids that are two years old, you know, chowing down on Cheetos and they come in for their, you know, two-year-old well visit. And it's, it's, it's disturbing to me what we're doing to our children. I mean, who knows as far as devel developmentally yeah. what we're robbing them of, of their future. Yeah. A lot. And, uh, yeah. Well, courtesy, well, and courtesy of federal right. policy or, you know, those Cheetos and everything that they're eating is, a uh, is in large part a result of the way we, um, the way our federal government incentivizes farmers to grow the feedstocks for those and the hamburgers and the and if it, if they incentivize farmers to do other things, and we'd have cheaper vegetables, cheaper whole foods that are healthy, and people would eat them more. Yeah, I mean. How do you stay motivated to change because, or to help people change? I mean, when you think about the problem and it's so large and so vast that the federal government is subsidizing these practices, the, you know, the big food is creating things in these items that are not even, I call them Franken foods that create these uh, food addicts. And I mean, it's just, 
it's so overwhelming. How do you, what, what, what goes on in your mind? What do you speak to yourself to maintain the, um, I don't know, the energy to continue pushing forward? Uh, I concentrate on the, the, um, the amazing successes, the, the individuals who, who are these points of light. Uh, a past president, I remember once we're talking about, and uh, there are these individuals who, you know, maybe they're one out of every 50 patients that we have who, despite all the odds, odds marshaled themselves, all of their energy, all of their willpower to do what we as physicians did not even think they could do. And you know what I mean. When you see somebody who's so down and so broken and they and they do more than even you or I could do to resurrect themselves. And when I think about these patients that I have like this, I use these. Um, I call them I call them radicals. I use these radicals as my inspiration when, you know, I'm getting a little demoralized or with the system or with patients not who don't listen or don't seem to grasp what's going on. And I remember them and they keep me mm-hmm. going. Yeah. And you know what I found is I, I so enjoy the podcast interviews because it's like my, you know, I, I, I'm lucky where I am right now, but my daily work, um, but it's even more to just to know that you're not in a silo and that there's other people out there like you and Dr. Greger and Dr. Furman and Dr. Esselstyn, but you know, Dr. Osfeld, Dr. Agarwal, all these people that I've met and been able to interview and other patients across the nation, even the world, um, that we're able to speak to and that we have this common thread of helping patients with this way of eating and living. So that's always so encouraging. And I think these, these, doctors, you know, I mean, you can count them maybe and fill a room with them, maybe. But uh, I think as the word gets out there and as we have a new generation who is of doctors and we do work with the Rutgers Medical School to bring residents, interns and medical students to our farm. We have rotations for them. And I think that creating this new generation will create more of these links in the fence so that I think that, you know, in the next 50 years, you know, by the time you and I start collecting Social Security, um, I think we'll have a pretty good system going. I sure hope so. You know, it's funny. I'm working with the um, Lifestyle Medicine um, Education Collaborative. And are you familiar with them? No, I'm not. So, um yeah, they actually are working towards bringing lifestyle medicine and making it a, a foundation in medical education. And so um, working with them to help bring, a, you know, medical students to our facility as well. And oh, is that the college? I'm, the college no, of lifestyle? No, it's actually separate from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So um, because I'm constantly looking for ways to share this message with our colleagues in a way that they'll understand and grasp. So... Um, is the program up and running? The collaborative? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's, it's a multi, it's a very, um, uh, loose, loosely 
organize um, organization. <laughs> and um, so I'm actually going to speak to them, the guy that's running it. And like, there's like this, there's like a Google's docs that you can go and they put add things in and it's like articles and different things. And um, I'm going to speak to him. They're at a medical school. It has left me at the moment, the name of the medical school. Um, but uh, I'm going to speak to him and his wife next Tuesday about how we can bring um, not only uh, students from their school, but to other schools too, because they have different points of contact, like in Florida and different schools. So I'll have to give you that information. I'll have to look that up. Please do. We did last summer. We did have a, a, a medical student from the University of Florida. Oh, cool! Intern on our farm for a month. Wow! And yeah, and so we're always looking for medical students, interns, and residents. Okay. So, yeah. So know about that. I'll definitely need to do that. Um, but yeah, it's really exciting, and I'm hoping to invade um, my daughter's medical school. <laughs> Actually, in her. Okay. Yeah. That's easier said than done. Yeah. Because. I've been trying to I've been trying to breach those walls for a number of years. It's hard. Well, you know, um, lucky for me, it's my alma mater, and so she got accepted to two medical schools, and she chose to go to Texas Tech. And so um, I'm hoping that <laughs> at least uh, I still know people there that we can somehow, you know, Good. weasel my way in. And her boyfriend's actually going there too. So, and he's also changed his diet and feels better yeah. and I mean I'm just so excited it's like I feel like you know it's like the octopus and the arms are going out and starting yes. to spread um yeah because there's some really neat research that I've been looking into there's a a doctor at um where was he located boy I'm having it's been a long day today I'm, it's left me but um his name is uh Nicholas Christos Christosk I believe and there's a TED talk about how he talks about networks and how things can spread like the obesity and how you have certain individuals in a, a network and <clears throat> they have certain um, influence. And so like if they're obese, it, it goes back to that, you know, you're six degrees away from someone. And um, basically, you know, it goes out to like four degrees of people that you may not know someone, but a friend of a friend of a friend who's obese may have a direct effect on you of whether you're obese or not. And he, yeah. and it's really cool how he looks at, you know, the spreading of either messages or obesity or different things, um, altruism, all sorts of different things. And what I'm thinking is, as physicians, we're located in these social networks, right? We have influence. Yes. Why can't we get, you know, we can look at our social networks and say, okay, these are the physicians we really need to focus on. And if they can spread this message in an effective manner, then I think we could, you know, cause this to happen a little bit faster. So I reached out to him to get an interview in the podcast and he said he was too busy, but <laughs> I will continue on. <laughs> yeah. But, um, it's fascinating stuff to me. This whole, it's just fascinating. But, um, yeah. Well, Dr. Weiss, is there anything else that you feel like any last bit of uh, advice or information we should share with our our listeners and potentially future patients for you? Um, well, um, we're down on the farm, and if anyone uh, anyone is looking for a primary doctor, or um, you know, we're always there. Uh, we're uh, 365 days a year in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day, 
uh, our patients always have access to me. Wow. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have patients coming from as far away as Georgia to New Jersey and different states in Washington, D.C., and one in California. Wow. So I think uh, good health, there's never any distance that someone potentially would not travel to get it. So, um, yep, all are welcome. Wonderful. And so I will put their, your contact information um, in the show notes as well. But do you, can you share your phone number in case people want to sure. reach out? The, well, the, the website is Ethos Health, E-T-H-O-S Health uh, dot org. And our telephone number is 908-867-0060. Okay, perfect. And um, I like to end the podcast and say thank you for what the individuals who I interview have done. And so a lot of times this type of job, especially someone who works as hard as you do, um, is a thankless job. And so I'm just going to say thank you for all those you've helped and who don't even, you don't even know that you've helped. So, um, and that we appreciate you. Oh, that's very, <laughs> very sweet of you. Thank You're you, welcome. Dr. Moore. No problem. So, um, and uh, I guess, well, that's where it is. And, and thank you again for spending your evening with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure.